This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international programme of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. And welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture, and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett, and today I'm joined by two very special guests. We've got, first of all, Tony Robinson, uh, host of Continuing Mission and an often contributor, frequent contributor to Primitive Culture. And producer of Melodic Treks. And producer of Melodic Treks, of course. How could I forget? And then that may come into uh, some of our discussion later on today, I think, because the topic that we're talking about today, the music, is definitely a very significant element of it. And I'm also joined by Chris Nunn, lecturer in film at the University of Greenwich, who has graced this podcast before as well, when we talked about First Contact, about... Was that about six months ago? Yeah, something I think like so, that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we're back. We're back at the University of Greenwich. We're sitting in the um, cinema in the university. And the reason is this episode is actually picking up on a conversation that Tony and I had a long, long time ago when we recorded our episode about the Wrath of Khan. I don't know if you even remember this, Tony, but we went to see a screening at the Prince mm. Charles Cinema. We did. And right. while we were recording in the bar, uh, they were screening 2001, A Space Odyssey. And I said to Tony, you know, it's funny, I've never seen 2001. And Tony said, I can't believe it. That's my favourite film. I love that film. You know, how can you not have seen it? And anyway, this sparked an idea in my head. We should watch 2001. So I mentioned this to Chris. Chris said, oh, I can screen it for you. I screen it for my students every year. So here we are to watch 2001 A Space Odyssey. And because this is primitive culture, we're going to be looking at it in terms of its influence on Star Trek, in terms in particular of its influence on the motion picture, which I think picked up an awful lot from that film. And we're kind of going to borrow the format of another podcast, which some of our listeners will probably be familiar with, the Missing Frames podcast over on the Nerd Party Network. And basically the format of that podcast is that they they take a film that, as they put it, everyone should have seen by this point in their lives. One of the people on the podcast hasn't seen it, so that'll be me today. Uh, the others have seen it and have you know their own uh, views about it. It's it's something that's important to them, something they've got a lot to say about. And then so we chat for a little bit beforehand, and then we watch the film, and then we chat again, and we see whether you know my expectations were met, whether the what it was like for me as a kind of newbie coming into this film, whether it surprised me, whether whether it kind of fit what I was expecting or not. But but maybe just before we go into the film, the two of you could talk to me a little bit about 2001. Try not to spoil it for me. <laughs> I mean, I probably, you know, I, I've been familiar with the kind of pop culture around this film, so I probably have absorbed quite a few lines of it without having seen it. But, but without spoiling too much of the plot, what is it, Tony, why don't you start, what is it about this film that is so important to you that, that 
has made such an impact on you? Right. Well, to start with, when I saw this film for the first time, I was just 12 years of age. Wow. And I, it didn't make any sense. And it didn't make any sense because we'd grown up in an era of film where stories were linear. Mm-hmm. It had a start, a middle and an end. And in a certain sense, this movie has a start, a middle and an end. You just don't realize it or you're not because of the way it's cut, because of the way it's shot. Uh, you don't engage with it immediately. So a lot of people ended up confused. I ended up confused, particularly the ending, which which everybody is confused at. Oh, that's something for me to look forward to then. <laughs> so, so, so over the years, it was um, my mission, uh, which I chose to accept, to find out more about this movie, mm-hmm. what it meant, why it was made, and, and, and what it was saying to the audience. A comment from Arthur C. Clarke, who co-wrote the movie, because it wasn't an original story. It was a combination of ideas, but based on a story that Arthur C. Clarke had written called The Sentinel, Mm -hmm. at the core of 2001, in a sense. But Arthur C. Clarke said that MGM had just spent $10 million on the most religious movie ever made, which he was alluding to was the story of creation, or at least the story of man's intelligence coming mm-hmm. out of an evolutionary period from when the apes and chimpanzees were roaming the earth and suddenly one group dominated the other and then subsequently grew in or evolved into humans. That's what Arthur C. Clarke said. So he had that comment uh, to make. What was your question? <laughs> why, why, why is this film so important to you? I'm kind of curious. So you saw it, you saw it at age 12 and you didn't, was it? maybe you didn't yes, quite that's right. get it, lost... but it obviously it intrigued you. Because I, I was going to say, actually, I say I've never seen this film before. I did try to watch this film once when I was a kid. I was probably, I don't know, like about eight years old. I don't think I got past the monkeys jumping around at the beginning. Right, okay. <laughs> I was just like, this the, is supposed to be a science fiction is... film. Yeah. You know, what on earth is this? And I switched off the TV. And I think that's one reason I've never gone and watched it is because I had this initial experience where I was just like totally, I don't know, taken aback and disappointed really by this film. And obviously in subsequent years, I've heard so much about it. I've heard so many people say how important it is to them, what a masterpiece it is. You know, Chris, you've told me you show it for your students every year. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a a real cornerstone of of understanding film and so on. Um, And yet for some reason, I think I've always felt a bit daunted by it, uh, Mm. having had that first, that initial bad experience. But I'm, I'm kind of curious, Tony, you obviously watched it at quite a young age and yet you didn't have that experience you it, it sucked you well, in no, its mystery I, I will agree with you. To you you will have a bad experience watching this movie because of the way it's cut it's it's, right. it's you know the, there's images juxtaposed with other images and they don't seem to gel and they don't seem to tell a story you have to understand the arc of the story and there's there's a, a theme going through it uh, that isn't blatantly obvious mm-hmm. but if we talk about it later, maybe we can highlight some things. Mm. So I think to answer your original question, which I should have answered right from the beginning, was why is this film so important? Well, the real answer is I don't know. It's because from that age, I, 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 it was sending out a subliminal message to me and I was picking up on it, but mm-hmm. I didn't know why I was picking up on it. I was in awe of the f- cinematography. Mm-hmm. I was in awe of the scenes in space. I was in awe of the things that went on inside the main uh, ship discovery. Mm-hmm. I was in awe of everything and, and I was drawn to it. But in terms of what message it was giving off, I was too young to understand. And so later on in life, I now can comment a- in a much 
a better way about this movie and add some of my own thoughts. You were Spock going through the Kolinar cer- ceremony and uh, <laughs> being um, drawn by this, uh, well, this mysterious uh, phenomenon that you didn't quite understand, but you couldn't get it out of your head. Well, you, you were kind you know, of sucked in to, to study it and strap on that I'm jetpack not and go into the, going into the depths of this movie. I'm not just Spock going through Kolinar. I'm Spock going through Vija. Right, mm. right. And you're still, you're still on that journey by the sounds of it. Oh, yeah. This is something that... Well, Vooch is very big. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> you could get lost in there. Well, Chris, what about you? I mean, this is a, a film that you show to students. Uh, this is something that obviously you think is something that they should see if they have, if, like me, they haven't seen it yet. What, what is it that you are thinking of when you're showing it to them? What is it that you, that you want them to take away from this film? It's a very difficult watch for the modern film student. Okay. And so part of me starts there by thinking exactly as Tony has said, this narrative is not conventional. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the film is asking you, the audience and the viewer to do a bit of work right. in order to piece some of these things uh, together. Uh, that's not quite, you know, that's a bit alien to a modern film student. That's why I show it, because I think if you're going to be a filmmaker, you should understand that there isn't actually just one way mm-hmm. of telling a story or of running a narrative, but also I think it's a it's an absolute landmark, a huge cinematic landmark. Obviously, Kubrick has uh, an incredible career, and, and and lots of his films are really interesting for a variety of reasons. But my personal feeling, as a huge science fiction fan, is that this film is a bit of a landmark for lots of stuff that came in the next decade. Mm-hmm. You know, and obviously we've got films like um, uh, Star Wars and Alien that kind of rejuvenated the box office and cinema going in the late 70s. Mm. Uh, and this film, I think those films borrow a lot in many ways from from this, you know, but it took 10 years almost for that to kind of seep through. And again, that's why I, th- I think it's really important for students to understand that yeah, maybe some change takes time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe there are some evolutionary steps in cinema that you won't make that link, but it might be worth exploring and seeing something you haven't seen. So, And it's interesting from a Star Trek point of view, this film came out in 1968, I think. Mm. So actually in the during the kind of period of the original series, mm. and in a way, you know, without having seen it, just from what I have seen of it, and, and also having just watched the motion picture, which I, you know, I, I, we'll talk a bit about later about how that, that film borrows from 2001 but I, I guess in terms of my anticipation my expectations I'm expecting some of the same kind of pacing maybe some of the same kind of approach to space and just from the clips I've seen from 2001 and so on very very different from the original series with the kind of bright brash uh, colorful quite sort of pasty quite sort of very emotional kind mm. of f- kind of sci-fi if you know what I mean this to me you know, maybe we'll, we'll, we'll talk again in a couple of hours and we'll, we'll see whether I've changed my mind. But I'm expecting something a bit more cool, a bit more detached, partly because of the kind of expectations that go with Kubrick as this kind of, how, how do you put it, like a, a sort of a, a very detailed genius, but a mm. bit sort of having that slightly aloof quality, mm. potentially. But it's interesting to me thinking about it in terms of this film as being something that comes out of absolutely the era of Star Trek mm-hmm. and that era of science fiction, but obviously, of course, then has a, a legacy going forward. I mean, the motion picture came out about 10 years yeah. after this film. So in terms of the influence that we're looking at, there's quite a long period of, of that kind of influencing the, the culture and influencing that filmmaking process. Mm. But anyway, so we, we talked a little bit about my, my expectations of this film. It sounds like from what you two have 
saying this is going to be a bit of a slog. So maybe we'd uh, we'd <laughs> better get straight well, into it. Yeah, let's. You're going to qualify do that, that, Tony. Uh, I, I, yeah, I think if you're seeing it for the first time, it might come across a, as a slog. But when you get into the main action, it actually moves along quite mm. rapidly. In, okay. But I don't think it's a spoiler to say that. There's no dialogue for 20 minutes. Okay. So Unless you include a series of grunts, screeches, and uh, yeah. yipping. This, this is what kind of killed it for my, me the first time around. <laughs> my, my personal favourite is the yipping. Right. Okay. I'll look, I'll look out for that. I'll think of you when we get to that bit. <laughs> I think, I suppose it's, it's one of those films, because it's such a classic, you know, it's kind of like Citizen Kane. It's like one of those kind of, you, you know, really big, revered movies. There's a real pressure for me because I'm like, okay, I've got to like this film. You know, Chris was saying to me earlier, you know, if you like science fiction, you ought to like this film. If I hate this film, does that make me a bad person? No. <laughs> you know? I, don't think you'll, I don't think you'll hate it. I no, think yes. you'll be in awe of it okay i don't expect you and i don't think chris expects you to make sense of it mm -hmm. from the middle part you can just about get a storyline going mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. it does tell a story there's mm -hmm. it's a mystery why is this person behaving that way why did that happen how did it come about that this thing happened? And so you're wondering and trying to figure that out. Is there malice intended? Is it, you know, um, there's all sorts of things going on. And then towards the end, it switches to a different, it tells a different tale. Mm -hmm. But when, as again, if we, if we get into it now, by the time we come back to it to talk about it again, we can add some ideas in. But it is, there's lots of, and, and Chris will have fantastic points. Mm. I, I think maybe Chris will have, fantastic points from a filmmaker's point of view mm -hmm. and I might have some points from a storyteller's point of view mm. and I might have some insights into certain things that happen through subliminally as I said earlier throughout the movie and then I'll highlight those later but you'll have to remind me because uh, well know. let's hope so and I'll just be in a, in a kind of catatonic state from That's, pure yeah, uh, overwhelmed right. I'll be again like Spock uh, lying on the on the bio bed yeah. tears so, streaming down my face and kind of, yeah, kind of bamboozled by the yeah. whole experience yeah. Well, well, can we've I got just a, say yeah. one thing? As we go into the movie, I'm just going to get into my little pod and go into hypersleep. So you're going to wake me up 18 months later. Okay. <laughs> well, it may, maybe it will feel like 18 months. We'll see. But I think that's as, as good a time as any to, to hit play. So without any further ado, Mr. Nunn on screen.
Well, that was quite an experience. That was, I have to say, that was more of a, a, a strange art house uh, experimental kind of experience than I was anticipating. I think I had it in my head that once we got past the apes and up into space, it would um, be slightly more conventional film. And it was, it was definitely unconventional in many ways. I, I see what you meant, Tony, about there being a chunk in the middle where it was it had a bit more of a kind of comprehensible or at least less mysterious plot but i mean what a fantastic experience thank you chris for for screening that for me um and thanks tony for coming along yeah no i i found that very interesting <laughs> i think it might take me a while to digest it, it I'll, does, I'll, it does I'll go home a, and, and and have a little think about that yeah, but um take a while or several watches yeah absolutely yeah. what about you two what, what, what since we're we're here partly to talk about this film in relation to the motion picture what kind of things did you notice on this viewing maybe thinking about it in terms of with that in mind what, what jumps out at you um, seeing it today for the you know 14th 15th uh, yeah, millionth times. time whatever it is um, for you guys the, the pacing is often what people link with the motion picture in mm-hmm. 2001. I think that is correct, mm. but there's quite there's something quite specific going on, I think, which is that in 2001, it's, it's quite methodical in the way it lays out how it's all working, mm-hmm. how we're actually in space. Mm-hmm. You know, that whole sequence, so from the bone goes up, you've got the ship, the ship, and the station, the people walking around with gravity boots. There's a certain, you know, that he's he's got a, a level of detail towards the technology and the practicalities of being in space. Mm. And in the motion picture, there's a lot of attention paid to the starship, to approaching the starship. You know that that certainly in that introductory sequence, um, yeah, the overly long. <laughs> drive to the Enterprise when I thought they were supposed to be in a bit of a hurry. Yes, exactly. (laughs) I thought Kirk just said this was urgent and yet somehow (laughs) you know, but there's people in spacesuits wandering around you know, outside the Enterprise they were quite careful about the scale you know, and and there's a level of detail there that I I, again on on re-watching this think is uh, very similar to what Kubrick's doing here. Definitely that sense of scale. And both films, of course, have people, you know, very small human figures in spacesuits contrasted with these enormous spaceships and mm. so on. Uh, it struck me, certainly, watching the motion picture again last night, that, yeah, f- first of all, there's this weird combination there of the supposed urgency of the mission with the fact it takes i timed it it was like 37 minutes i think before the enterprise leaves space mm. dock on this you know massively urgent mission and they don't get to vija for about an hour or so into the film but there's also one of the things that struck me about it that makes it feel because i think one of the issues that some people have with the motion pictures it feels quite unstar trek you know it's it it, it it may be coming off of TOS and going into it, it was very different in a lot of ways. And partly that was because it picked things up, you know, from the cinema and particularly probably from this film, uh, you know, and from other films as well. It, it felt very different. But it's also quite unlike the Star Trek that comes after it, because then, of course, there's a massive course correction in a way with the Wrath of Khan. And, and, and in a way, the kind of original series movies, I guess... They vary quite a lot. I mean, they go in a lot of very strange directions. If you think of like the voyage home and so on, they're, they're quite experimental in their own way in terms of playing with genre and playing with the kind of <laughs> what what we might think a Star Trek movie might be. Certainly compared to say the more recent the Kelvin movies, which are all quite you know they're they're different and some of them are maybe more successful than others, but they're kind of on a formula and the formula is fairly predictable and you know broadly speaking what you're going to get. Mm. But the other thing that 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 struck me that definitely reminded me or seemed like a kind of link between these two films as well as the kind of 
that sense of scale of the space things is yeah this emphasis on as you say chris the kind of practicalities of it and almost the kind of nuts and bolts of it and in the motion picture one of the things i thought was weird is we have endless docking scenes you have all these ships docking with each other and you think hang on you know isn't star trek meant to be all about the transporter and the transporter is i mean yeah it was about saving money but it's also about getting the you know it's quick action it's basically you go from one place to another you don't have to bother with all that kind of sci-fi paraphernalia in a way and yet, weirdly, in the motion picture, somehow they, they, they brought all of that stuff that Star Trek deliberately eschewed on TV. They yeah. kind of brought all of that in. But then, of course, the motion picture is the Star Trek story that has a horrific transporter accident yes. right at the beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's very strange. Like, you've got this awful transporter accident. These people are completely, you know, mutilated and, and deformed or whatever. If you read the novel by Gene Roddenberry, he, he talks about how they came out inside out or whatever. You know, it's this really gruesome thing. Then you get the next mention of the transporter is McCoy basically saying, I'm not getting in that thing. <laughs> But he does anyway. So I don't know. It's it's this weird... I, I sort of wonder whether that is almost a kind of emblem of what's going on in the motion picture, this refusal to, you know, the transporter being the technology more so than warp drive, more than anything really that is associated with Star Trek. It's mm. kind of, you know, beam me up. That's what we think of as Star Trek. And suddenly that's kind of massively problematic. Mm. And as a result, we get all this kind of, this much slowed down approach to space travel. Mm. Yeah, actually, Spock arriving is a bit of a curious one, isn't it? Because that's a ship that then detaches from a ship mm. in order to dock. And you think, but you could have just, exactly. just beamed him over. Yeah. Like, it's I don't oh, they didn't have side to side beaming. Ah, right. Yeah. Well, and, and that, that Vulcan ship didn't yeah, have a transport no, system probably, installed. Yeah. Or, or um, <laughs> maybe it was no, a spirit no, no, ship. The, it was like the Kolinar monks. Uh, no, no, you know, it's much more. Were, um, much more it's, it's more fashion than that. No. Enterprise uses Windows 10 and <laughs> we're on Apple. Right. The yeah. t- they don't talk to each other. No, fair enough. Well, if anyone's going to be using a, an outdated and, and difficult and kind of, you know, problematic transporter system, it's probably the Vulcans. They're going to say that they, they can't transport to and from anyone else's ships. But you're, you're right, absolutely. That sense of like, you know, one thing detaches from this thing and another thing attaches to this and detaches from this and so And definitely in 2001, I, I was getting that feeling not knowing... I mean, I knew at some point they were going to get somewhere where the, where, you know, where the monolith was or where something was going to happen. But there seemed to be a lot of stages. You know, first we've got to get to the sta- station, yeah. then you've got to get the from moon. the station to the moon, then yeah. you've got to get from the, you the know, moon out like, to where the monolith is. How long, so kind of in 2001, how long does it take to land a bloody ship? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, they're lining it up like it's some kind of Atari computer game, obviously well ahead of its well, time. In, 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 in essence, it was. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, the wonderful game Elite was mm. based on that because, yes. you, you know, you had to line yourself up with the, the slot in whatever planet or space station you were going to. Right. And then you had to rotate at the same speed so that yeah. you could do it. Yeah. So they based that. That was a wonder. I, I loved playing that game. That was amazing. Well, which is what, you know, we see real life NASA astronauts mm. doing these kind of things. And I suppose it is definitely the sense of realism in terms of the kind of practicality and the kind of pragmatics of, of space travel and all that kind of. There's, it's very, I mean, I think this film very much avoids the sort of science fiction. A, a lot of science fiction, there's a bit of fudging going on do you know what i mean whether it's like how does the warp drive work whether it's like you know how, how does the gravity work you know all these kind of things that we typically we sort of accept the, the things that you suspend your disbelief about when you watch a science fiction mm-hmm. film usually whereas this one it feels very much like it's kind of yes like you say very rigorous about yeah. kind of explaining all of that even down to the velcro shoes or whatever yeah. they are at the same time as marrying that with this very kind of expressionistic kind of experimental visual 
approach, this kind of, you know, non, not totally straightforward approach to what's good. Particularly towards the end, you're kind of thinking, well, I was certainly thinking, you know, I'm not 100% sure what is actually going on yeah. here. What what am I seeing? Who is experiencing? You know, I, what I, What's even the perspective within this scene? Because it's, at the end it's of the so day, kind of dreamlike remember, and so mysterious. Yeah. You know? at, at the end of the day, you've got to remember, it is telling a story. Mm. There is a point to the movie, mm-hmm. or at least Stanley Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke are making a point. Mm. Um, they got $10 million from MGM mm. to go make your movie. Mm. And so they did, and uh, each of them in turn had something to say. I think Arthur C. Clarke, from a humanistic point of view, had his uh, story to tell, and Kubrick, from his point of view, had a cinematic story to tell. He mm-hmm. wanted to visualize what the future would look like, mm-hmm. and to a large degree, he, he, well, let's, if I say he got it right, uh, well, we don't have, you know, giant spaceships out heading for Jupiter just yet. No. But we did have a space shuttle, and the space shuttle, as depicted in the movie, didn't look too far off mm-hmm. uh, what the future space shuttle from that time would mm-hmm. look like. Mm-hmm. And uh, what else did we get right? Um, Some kind of iPad. Yeah, Some I was quite impressed iPad, by that iPad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, I always thought Next Generation invented iPads. Uh, no, yeah. not. <laughs> no, they had flat screen TVs. The mm-hmm. guys are sitting at their desk, and mm. on comes the, the news program, mm. and uh, that's all flat screen. And of course, all the displays around the ship are all flat screen and mm. uh, going away. And it's all very realistic. It's minimalistic and realistic at the same time because there there aren't any you know random flashing lights that you can't make sense of. Mm. Uh, everything has a, seems to have a function absolutely I yeah. think the amount of again this is something that, that probably Star Trek broadly speaking kind of is a bit of a suspension of disbelief is what are all these panels about but mm. actually you look at the discovery here in 2001 every panel seems to have words on it and you can yeah. make out what those words Oh, yeah. <laughs> Even the toilets. There's a te- yes. te- te- yes. 10 yes. points Zero you had gravity. to study if yeah. you wanted yes. to use the toilet. Zero and the, the man standing toilet. there, yes. sort of, you know, yes. reading all the fine prints so that he's, you know, understandably I'm, I'm doesn't sure, want to get that wrong. But, you know. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that there is a real notification on, say, the International Space Station that tells you how, to, how use to use the toilet. toilet. Yeah. Mm. But, however, when you got to go, you got to go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and where no man's gone before. <laughs> Oh, yeah, dear. absolutely. I mean, it's interesting. I, I guess, I guess, when we're thinking about the kind of visual similarities between these two films, the person that is really at the uh, centre of that, in a way, is Douglas Trumbull, who works on both of them. And I suppose, you know, we talked a little bit about the similarities between the kind of model work on the films, and I think there's, you know, definitely you can see that in terms of the the detail of the models which is part of what brings out the scale but also the way they're lit and mm. the kind of the, the they seem to be lit very carefully in both those films compared mm. to a lot of you know even just a lot of science fiction films yeah. i mean that endless flyby scene of the enterprise it is overlong i mean it is it is slightly laughable to watch at the same time it is beautifully shot it yeah. is like you know if, you, if you're going to spend five minutes or whatever it is staring at a model they've worked out how to do that both visually and you know of course with jerry goldsmith's music and so on but the other thing of course that they both have in common is you know particularly at the end with 2001 we've got this kind of i don't know even how you describe it this sort of visual ab- abstract visual stuff on screen <laughs> that you know it may or may not mean 
you, 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 it, it, it is like a piece of abstract art in a sense. You know, the kind of meaning that you take from it is, is partly down to, 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 you know, what is almost like a Rorschach test or something. Yeah. And obviously in the motion picture with the interior of the Vija cloud, mm. you, you, you know, again, there's that kind of sense of these kind of mysterious sort of swirling shapes, these different geometric shapes as well in both mm. films. You know, again, almost like kind of abstract art, almost like kind of geometric art or something. And these kind of organic forms that could really be anything, but they kind of attract our attention. They sort of suck you in. And obviously, and Douglas Trumbull as well works on um, The Tree of Life, that film more, did, more yeah. recently, which again has a lot of these kind of weird sort of swirly patterns he, and he, things. He that, also you know. did, if we're thinking about models and ships in sci-fi, he did well, Silent Running. Right. Yeah, right. yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, so the Liberty Bell was it? The, no, it wasn't the Liberty Bell. What am I talking? About? It was the you. Uh, <laughs> this bit out. I should know this. <laughs> I can't remember the name of it. So. It was the Valley Forge. Ship in the Valley Forge. Right. The Valley yeah, Forge. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> um, but yes, he did. Uh, and I think you know, in both these films, that kind of slightly more abstract visual material is part of what. I suppose it's how we represent the unknown or how we represent, you, you know, the kind of the whole mission of Star Trek being to go out there and, and find, you, you know, seek out the unknown, mm. seek out something kind of beyond our understanding. Whereas obviously if you think about space in terms of like our experience of space and NASA and the kind of these sort of things, it, it is all quite practical. It is all about making sure this bit joins up with this bit and the thing doesn't explode and we don't lose pressure and we don't, you, you know, we do manage to land on exactly the right spot mm-hmm. uh, and with the orbit doesn't go wrong. It is all these quite mathematical, practical things. But both these films are also very invested in space as this kind of sublime I suppose almost this kind of otherworldly or at least somewhere that you can encounter the otherworldly you can encounter this kind of almost spiritual thing that's out there somewhere. and in a way quite terrifying mm. I mean you know the Vija cloud of the first time I watched it I don't know how old I was but I found that terrifying mm. you know you watch it vaporise the stuff and we don't know what it is and it's just coming towards earth and and that's that and then of course you get that abstract visual sequence with 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 spock going into the mm. well, the ship first and then spock off into it and that doesn't make it any clearer no <laughs> no, no it was a bit, it, because it was a very dark film mm. and um, all, almost monochromatic and uh, you couldn't your your brain couldn't decipher what's far away and what's near what the, the even if you know that that part over there is an alien thing. Mm-hmm. You sort of know why it's an alien thing, or you, you sort of know what it does. But in v- with Vija, you never knew what you were seeing. Even when Spock went to great lengths to say, I'm seeing whole continents, planets, mm-hmm. so, you know, solar systems. Which again, we seem to really? see in 2001, we seem to see like... Yeah, planet. You know, not just planets, but kind of land masses and all these sort of things. Mm. But again, there's this kind of ambiguity about everything you're seeing. It's kind well, of it's, for the it's for there the, and then it's kind of swirled away or it's it's, mm. it's obscured. Well, the end somewhere. sequence is meant to be um, Dave Bowman's journey through a star system and mm-hmm. and journey through. I don't think he's going through the intelligence of what's brought him there. He is traveling faster than light Mm -hmm. and he is witnessing, supposedly witnessing the birth of new stars. He's seeing it happen, Mm -hmm. the creation of new stars and the destruction of others and anything that goes in between. 
And then gradually, he, he, even though he's in a state of shock, he's gradually becoming coming to accept that whatever beings have created all this, they are welcoming him here. He is the first interstellar traveler from Earth, and they're bringing him here uh, gently. They're showing him all this stuff going on around him, but they're bringing him to uh, a, a final place. And that's why at the end, he's in something he recognizes, which mm. is this room. But he knows that he's billions of light years from home with no hope of, or no way of ever getting back. But, he, but he's in a familiar place and they've deliberately done that. Well, hence the old man and so on. Hence the, well, the, I mean, the, there is something quite horrific about that's this. Another, that's another, that's another And even the room it's, the, itself, you know, it couldn't, I mean, talking about Stanley Kubrick, it reminded me a little bit of the Overlook Hotel. It's yes, kind it, of, yeah. As much as it's got this kind of, you know, white light flooring and so on, it's also got this kind of chintzy, it, I don't yeah, know, there, there's, there's, there's something quite, exactly yeah, quite sinister about all of that somehow. I don't know why. Yeah. Again, and this comes from the novel rather than from the, mm-hmm. from the movie, the aliens know that there are certain parts of Earth that you'll f- be familiar with, or you know, Earth furniture mm-hmm. um, that you uh, architecture you'll be familiar with, and so they've done their best to try and make it that way. They may not be modernistic. They may not be in the year two thousand and one. Mm-hmm. They may have locked out in the eighteenth century or something, the Regency period or something, mm-hmm. and and but nevertheless, they're making an effort. It somehow fits the, mo- the movie. But well, also, it's got the, the sense of the past and the future are kind of uh, mm-hmm. lots of together, metaphors. aren't they? Lots so, you know, and obviously yeah. he's, got, he's got the old man on the bed. He's got the kind of baby being. Thing. Well, they're all the same person. You know? he, he, exactly. He, but we're I'm an observer like the and then he's an his, observer. Yeah. That's what's going on. Of his own life. His yeah, own, we're yeah. observing. Yeah. And then it flips. Mm. And then he becomes the observer. And then it flips back again, and we become the observer. Mm. And yeah, and that's where you get this crazed up thing. What the heck is going on here? Mm. But he's witnessing his own life, you know, coming to a conclusion. There's no sense of time in it. Mm. Because we're sitting here and watching him do these things, we get the impression that all this seems to take place inside 20 minutes mm. whereas we've no idea how long this takes place he might be living out his life fully for the next 35 years mm. and then he's getting f- memory flashbacks oh i remember the time when there was a machine over there oh i remember the time when there was a i was in that bathroom and i remember the time when i was in the bathroom and i heard a noise and i looked forward and wondered what it was and so it keeps flipping back and forwards but because our expectations on the movie is always for a story to be linear that's that's where we get this massive confusion but ultimately mm. if i if i haven't uh, cut across your point ultimately he he does become this elderly man on the bed and he lifts his hand and points his finger in a Michelangelo style mm. towards what has for him become God. This is mm. the reference mm. going back to Arthur C. Clarke. This rectangular monolith is now bringing him into a new state of consciousness, a new mm. state of being, a new state of evolution. 
And that's why the movie finishes with this embryonic mm. child that's still in its, uh, you know, womb-like structure. And then the scene suddenly switches to Earth because... Uh, in the book, the, the child is referenced as the, the star child, mm-hmm. but it, it has gathered so much information and so much knowledge, it doesn't need to go back through that long passage of flashing lights. It can be anywhere at once, instantly, at any time. Mm. And the film ends with the child almost pondering as to what to do next. Mm. What will it do next? I don't know if you picked up on it, but what was supposed to be obvious at the end of the movie, we haven't even done the story yet, but at the end of the movie, is there are no, there's no weaponry orbiting the Earth. He's, oh. he's got rid of that. Right. And then he's thinking, okay, well, I wonder what we can do now. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah, that is very interesting. Yeah. I've never, uh, God knows how many times I've watched that. Because it opens with weaponry. That. It opens with, you have these apes learning, you know, mm. g- getting, a, um, uh, gathering, uh, you know, the burgeoning of uh, the, birth of intelligence that's what mm. i'm trying to say the birth of intelligence where he's suddenly realizing that a bone can be a tool and it can be a weapon mm. and he uses it as a weapon that you see this first ape getting killed as the first death mm. or willful death in the movie and then they rather than go through a you know thousands of years of history or whatever the boat we suddenly get projected into the future and the earth is surrounded by these satellites which at first glance they're communication satellites mm-hmm. but in reality they're not they're atomic weapons waiting to be deployed somewhere over the earth by the various powers the chinese mm-hmm. the russians the and this Germans. is coming from the novel is it is partly out of the novel yes obviously from the novel but depicted because i didn't yeah, because because it's, yeah <laughs> right. i know because this is the thing you can't see this on the first viewing of this movie uh-huh. it's all about the transition of mankind it's uh, it, you know arthur c clark is telling his evolutionary tale yeah saying once we were apes and we learned how to do something now our intelligence has grown so large that uh, we can put things in space now mm. we can travel to the moon we can travel in in a space station and whilst all this go- is going on, and we're introduced to it later in the movie, there's already a mission going out to Jupiter. Well, and also, I mean, I, I, get, I guess even without realising that those things we saw going around the Earth were, were necessarily weapons, there is visually a connection because that's what the... the that's, I think, what the, the cut is, yeah. is between the bone, which is, as you say, I mean, you know, people talk about it in terms of making tools, but really it's about making weapons. And that's what seems to change that society in a yeah, way. It's, it's, yeah. it's kind of violent potential. And then we go up to there. And then, of course, if you think of it in terms of technology, I suppose it makes a bit more sense of what the whole sort of HAL storyline adds to the to the bigger picture because that was the thing that puzzled me i suppose about this film was i always you know going into it i knew so i knew there were these monoliths i knew they had this impact on the apes i knew something big was going to happen towards the end i also knew there was a kind of homicidal computer but i had no idea why (laughs) Uh, and in a way watching it now i still feel like they're almost like two separate they do feel like quite different it feels almost like two stories that have been kind of mashed together in a way and as you said beforehand tony the bit in the middle is more conventional in some ways although it's still 
a little bit mysterious as to exactly what's going on, but it, it feels m- more like a science fiction film. Mm. And then the stuff, the kind of Ooh. wrap around it is more kind of metaphysical and spiritual yeah. and kind of arty, I suppose. Mm. Um, well, Stanley Kubrick was, is, is telling this, this story, as I said, from a visual point of view. And because the film's non-linear, there are things happening in sections mm-hmm. that your brain wants to join the dots, but in some way they, they, they can, but you have to really dig deep to see those dots being joined. Okay, so if you don't mind me uh, giving my explanation, uh, which may sort of be like a spoiler thing. Okay, so we, we, we have the apes and, and this monolith appears. And then we suddenly, in, in a section... Uh, one of the apes ap- appears to be suddenly getting a thought at a time when he never had a thought before. And then he, he, he thinks, oh, what do I do with this bony thing? Oh, I know, I'll kill an animal. And and by because of that, they become stronger. Okay, so but the monolith is key. And, and then uh, there's a sequence where the monolith isn't there anymore. And they're carrying on as if they couldn't even remember when it was there or even what it was or why it was there. It's gone. Mm-hmm. Then we move forward to the moon, where the humans are scrambling around like, you know, frightened ants, because they found something on the moon that they can't explain. And there's almost a a, uh, recreation of the scene where when the apes were touching it, wondering whether they'd be killed if they touched it. The humans are touching it in this kind of, what the heck is this kind of thing? But because they've only dug it up, and it's not really explained in the movie because the lunar cycle is 28 days it's just reaching the point where the sun is coming around Mm -hmm. that crater and the sun's rays hit the monolith and the monolith has been waiting for that it Mm -hmm. knows that when the sun hits the monolith it knows it has been dug up it knows some intelligent outside force has found it. All this time it's been giving off a radiation signal. They have found that radiation signal. They've dug down. They've found this thing. And now it's exposed to the lack of atmosphere. But the sun hits it and it knows, right, I'm emitting a signal. And that's why later in the movie they say the signal was directed directly at, you know, directly at Jupiter. It just so happens independently they have a mission going to jupiter it has nothing to do with the monolith at all it's a totally independent thing they these are a group of astronauts who are going out to explore the jovian moons and three of them are in uh, hibernation and two of them are just working around the clock to keep the the ship running and hal is monitoring everything but hal knows something that they don't know hal has been given instructions that the real reason we're going there is to find the source of the signal or the end point of that signal and nothing but nothing must get in that way and by a series of conversations with the crew and by playing chess and by being a super intelligent computer Hal has worked out himself that the fly in the ointment are the two astronauts and, and the others who will eventually wake up. And he, he thinks to himself, they're going to do, screw up the mission, so I better get rid of them. And he works out a way of doing that. 
And is that sort of because he wants to have the encounter with the monolith? No, he's purely. Them? I mean, no, what? he's purely. Because it's just I, I logic. He's almost, Hal is almost like Spock. It's just pure logic. That's it. Yeah, but there's I no... was just because there's this question. I mean, the guy even asks the the TV interviewer or whatever says, you know, does Hal have feelings? And yeah. there's this question in the motion picture: Does yeah. the Ilea yeah. probe? If it has Ilea's memories, can it have Ilea's feelings? Yeah. And this is kind of going to be the key to, uh, you know, and at the end of the film when Decker sort of joins merges, merges yeah. w with Vija. that's the whole idea is is to kind of merge the machine the machine kind of can be very sophisticated and very elaborate but it lacks that the human quality mm. in a sense and i was sort of wondering you know what is how uh, w w what's his kind of goal in this sense and it, it, is it that you know we saw the birth of man as it says are we mm -hmm. going to see the birth of the machine uh, intelligence. intelligence and this is this is what's required for mm -hmm. how to become to become a transcendental mm. computer mm. in some way or you know what what's what's, I don't, what's I don't the kind think, of intention I don't there? think Hal has um, emotions I think his he as I, as Dave Bowman says he acts like he has emotions mm -hmm. you know he's programmed to do that to make us feel better and I, I really believe that to be the case and and Hal works along those parameters mm. but in terms of logically working out the game of chess is significant mm -hmm. the, 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 you know when you're playing chess and i hate playing chess well i love playing chess and i hate playing chess but you're the the trick is to be three moves ahead of your opponent mm. and Hal has the entire game ahead of his opponent but that's a kind of a clue it's a subtle clue that Hal has already worked out and now he's factoring in how am i going to introduce what I'm going to do and at what point. And he builds up a very plausible storyline that a communications unit in the antenna array is going to fail within 72 hours. Mm. Best check it out. And they do. And he's building up their sort of trust that, okay, uh, hmm, that's, w that's weird. Oh, let's, let's put it back. Somebody else's turn. And mm. that's when he makes his move. He mm. strikes. And, uh, and now a, a whole series of new events occurs. But, but how? <laughs> this is one of the beauties of the the the, the movies, uh, the movie story. Um, Hal can't make a mistake, but yet he makes a fundamental mistake. He can't outthink humanity's ability to think. So Dave projects himself back into the ship through the emergency airlock, which Hal has no control of. Mm. And then we see Dave with a helmet on because the implication is Hal will try and kill Dave sure. by ejecting all the air out of the mm. ship. So, mm. so Dave is still in the vacuum, even though he's contained inside the ship. But he, he now no longer has any control over mm. Dave and he realizes it. And we have a few funny lines, but ultimately, you know, Hal's put to sleep. But there's also this sort of question about the fallibility or not of these human created machines. And obviously, you know, with Hal, there's this there's this question, well, that the a Hal unit has never made it's never gone wrong yeah, before. And then the guy says, you know, isn't that just what is he, I was gonna say asking for trouble, whatever it is, that's sort of tempting fate or whatever. And obviously the the whole plot of the motion picture ultimately turns out to be about the the Voyager probe, and the Voyager probe has kind of you know, it's, it's come back with this kind of idea that it has to meet the creator and so mm. on. It's, it's come back with certain kind of faulty, again, sort of faulty thinking in a way, very much. I mean, you know, the other, of course, massive influence in the motion picture was The Changeling, the episode The Changeling, where, yeah. you know, you had the Nomad probe that was doing a lot of the same stuff and it had kind of got a, 
you know, and in that episode, basically Kirk talks it into recognizing these kind of logical errors that have been made, you know, all these errors that have been made, you know, you've made an error, you've, you've misidentified me as the creator, you, you've made an error about this and that and so on. Mm. Um, and in the motion picture, it's, it's more, I suppose it's a more hopeful ending because although McCoy says, you know, boys are going to be disappointed <laughs> basically when it finds out what the creator is. Yeah. Uh, it, it doesn't, the film doesn't end in disappointment. It ends in this kind of transcendental moment. And, mm. you know, with the, famous line the human adventure is just beginning yeah. and in a way so does 2001 it ends because it ends i mean i found that that last the scene in the kind of hotel room where he sees the old man and then he's dying in the bed and everything is quite shocking and and you know it's uncomfortable to watch and quite scary in a way sort of mm. existentially scary but then the kind of baby creature brings it back to this feeling but, of hope and him. optimism and sure I know, it's but it's just, also yeah. some kind of sense of the future. And like you mm. were saying, this idea of the start, it, 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 I felt watching it without having read the novel or whatever, there was this kind of ambiguity about, yes, it's him, but it's also, it's not just a memory of his, uh, uh, of the beginning of his life that is now equally come to an end. It seems to be something new mm. and certainly, and maybe that's the impact of having watched the motion picture last night in preparation for this as well, where it's kind of explicitly something new is happening. It, it felt like that was a new being. And because we've been primed to think, Oh, okay, these monoliths come and they change things and they, you know, create well, something it, new it, in a way, in, a, that, in some that way. Point, that point of it becoming a new there, being, you know? being is, um, is again, the story trying to suggest to you that, Mankind evolved from these apes. Mm. This new star child has evolved from the from mankind. It's yeah. it's reached a turning point where it, it's now reaching for the star, so it's ready to become something new. Mm. And the star child comes back to its to Earth just to so right. I'm going to put a few things right here. Get rid of all the weapons. And of course, the poor people down on Earth, they don't know what the heck's going on. But a change is afoot, and eventually they probably come to realize. Um, a whole new era has begun. Mm. Something wonderful is about to happen. I mean, it is the other reading, or uh, not even another, but the, uh, a way of reading 2001 is as various leaps in intelligence. Yeah. You know, so we, yeah. and the monolith appears at key moments within, within that kind of framework. So we go from ape to space, and within the space narrative, we have how. So we've created our own intelligence, and then we get to the end where something entirely new. Uh, turns up that's certainly i think one way of of kind of one way of following the film which is yeah. as you said arthur c Clarke's sort of more humanist message i think moving through so there's also a, a number of clues again going back through the movie which which stanley kubrick likes to drop in and there are a series of birthdays mm. um uh, his uh, mm. floyd Hayward Floyd calls his daughter to wish her a happy birthday. She wants a bush baby. And then a reverse of this, uh, Frank Poole, his parents called to mm -hmm. wish him a happy birthday. And then we have the birth of the star child. It's another birthday. Mm -hmm. So there's all sorts of little, yeah. uh, little things coming in there. Mm. <laughs> yes, Duncan is looking more confused I'm, than I'm before he started. Go <laughs> um, hang on, just give me a moment. Uh, it was always going to be a bit of. An and I, I said to Duncan just at the beginning of the movie, just in a whisper, there's even a, a, a little clue in the opening uh, piece of music. Thus, 
Brach of Thus Spake Zarathustra by Richard Strauss, which is And God Spoke or mm -hmm. In the Beginning. It's, it's, it's telling a musical tale. It's saying, in the beginning, this happened, mm -hmm. you know, or God spoke and this happened, you know. And, and, famously, and God is the monolith in, in essence. Sure. I, I was just going to say, and famously in 2001, the, you know, the music was changed at a late stage, right? I mean, True. there was a score composed for this film mm. that was then By substituted with this uh, classical music. And, you know, the classical music is so much a part of that film yeah. and so much a part of, you, you know, the way those scenes are kind of edited together and so on, it's, you know, and not just classical music, but say the Blue Danube is, you know, a dance and the way yeah. that the, the, yeah. the visual kind of dance on screen is matched up to the music yeah. is, is so kind of elegant and so kind of poetic in a way. That's kind of a big part of the appeal of the film, I think, in some ways. And obviously, of course, with the motion picture as well, we have, you know, Jerry Goldsmith's music famously and, uh, you know, whether people love the film or have problems with that film, everyone loves the score to that film. You yeah. know, it's one of those films where the score absolutely kind of elevates it and, and helps it to kind of hit that sort of level of profundity that it's going for in a mm. sense. And that kind of, you know, I mean, one of the things I sort of felt watching the motion picture is that, yes, it does drag a lot. It is very slow, but at the same time, it does really, it feels like it's about something. Do you know what I mean? And mm. it's not always a hundred percent clear what it's about, but it's kind of, there's definitely a kind of real serious intent behind that film. And it may or may not always totally land as a kind of experience sitting in the theater, Do you, you know, think kind of bang that, for your um, buck, but it kind of, there's, there's, it, it, it's, there's something happening there. Do you know what I mean? And mm. you, you know, and you are, if you can kind of cope with the pacing, you're kind of experienced, you, you know, you can go along with that and you can get a lot out of it potentially. I, I'm kind of curious, Tony, did you see, maybe we could just talk a bit about the motion picture itself as well. Did you see it in the cinema? I actually saw it on, on the day it was released. Yay. Wow. <laughs> and what were your, so you had like a genuine, you see, for me, I think the motion picture was probably the last of the original series films I saw. So, you know, I saw it on DVD, but I mean, for you, that was the first one, right? And you were there at the, Literally, at that moment, just, which is a just, kind of moment that we can't really recapture in some ways. Um, well, it, it, I didn't go deliberate. If I said I went deliberately to see it because I'm a super Star Trek fan, I'd, mm. I'd really be lying. So I'm re being very honest here. I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. Mm -hmm. And when I joined the queue to go in, it was in New York mm -hmm. uh, where it was sh uh, showing because I, I think it opened in New York before it opened in the UK. Mm. But anyway, I just happened to be there. And um I was, I, all I remember, first of all, was being scared I wouldn't get in because there was right. a line went around the corner okay. uh, of fans waiting to get in. And everybody uh, sitting down, and we mentioned this um, dance around the Enterprise with, with Kirk staring here, there, and everywhere. Mm. Everybody was waiting for that moment. Nobody didn't, nobody gave a toss no about, cared that about their storyline. 10 minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> you know, danger in space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get the crew together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's see the Enterprise. Right. And, yeah. and then when you first introduced to the Enterprise, it's a spec. No, mm -hmm. let's, <laughs> let's see it. Because they did it beautifully. They did mm -hmm. it. I mean, that was, I mean, they're, they're deliberately teasing you and then they're showing you this great spectacle. And rightly so, because we're being introduced to a whole new ship. Nothing like, I mean, similar in shape to what we saw on the TV screen, but nothing like it at all. 
yeah. and very, very realistic and very real. And can I just give a plug for Project Enterprise, which is something very close to my heart. Mm -hmm. And I work with Paul Olson, who is the artist who actually painted the surface of the Enterprise specifically right. for that movie. Right. And uh, he's uh, working very, very hard to reproduce and create a second Enterprise using the same designer, Richard Taylor, and the same builder, Jim Dow. And uh, hopefully that project will get underway in November this year and we'll see something concrete or plastic uh, this time next year. <laughs> cool. Well, it's interesting talking about plastic. I mean, one of the things that struck me about these kind of models is it, it, looking at the, the motion picture, you notice it right at the beginning because the motion picture starts with those Klingon ships, mm -hmm. right? And I was just thinking, if all you've seen is the original series, you know, back on TV, you know, whatever it is, 10 years previously, and you go into the cinema and see those ships the first thing that struck me about them is the level of detail because mm. they're, they're not like flat. I mean, often in Star Trek, we get ships that are kind of fairly flat surfaces and, and in later years, they use Aztecing and kind of design elements and lighting and so on to try and give them a bit more texture, but they are generally very flat kind of Federation ships. Whereas a lot of science fiction films, you get these kind of, you know, there's all these, whatever they are, pipes or turrets yes. or these kind of yeah, little, yeah, yeah. little bitty bits. they're called. Greeblies. Right. And if you, if you think of say the, the opening shot of Star Wars, for example, the Star Destroyer in yeah. that, you've got again, those little sort of bits, bits and bobs that make it yeah. feel more, like a real, a large well, real object. And it's interesting that that's something that obviously comes into Star Trek with the mo literally in the first few seconds of the motion picture. Well, the, really there are two brothers. Uh, I can't remember the second brother, but J J Jim Dow, who built the framework of the enterprise and m molded the, the parts that we ultimately see on, on the screen, mm. his brother w worked with ILM and they were producing the X-Wings and the Star Destroyers mm -hmm. and everything else. And they were the ones that were realized that if you stick all these little extra bits on, it gives greater texture to, to the ship mm -hmm. and makes it feel like it's a, you know, it's a real thing. But having said all that, 1977, 78, you know, for Star Wars and, and Star Trek, uh, uh, the motion picture, if you look at the ship Discovery on 2001, it had an amazing amount of pipe work and bits yeah. stuck on, and my goodness me. And I don't know if you know this, and it, but how long do you think that the ship Discovery was in that movie? We see a beautiful passing shot from nose to, to engines. How long do you think that was? Well, Half I'll a mile? <laughs> no, no it was a model, you know. Oh, I yeah. see, you mean in real, yeah. real life. Yeah, I thought yeah, you were yeah. asking no, me to estimate yeah, the length of the ship. I didn't, no, I didn't <laughs> make that. I don't know, Kubrick took you a while to explain yeah. the length of the ship. Yeah, that's right. How, how long was the model? I don't know, uh, a metre. It was 60 feet long. Oh, my God. Wow. Yeah. wow. Compared to that's the Enterprise incredible. in the motion picture, which was eight feet long. Right. That's incredible. Yeah, 60 feet long, and it took 12 hours to do that one shot we saw where it was passing. Mm. took 12 hours and mm. about 12 hours per shot of it passing. Then they had to go back and do the matting shot. And then they had to do go back and do some other compositing shot mm -hmm. and put it all together to make it look like it's just gliding through space. Mm. It's majestic. And that was Douglas Trumbull. Mm -hmm. it, it, is, it is. It is. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, according to Trumbull, there's actually about 200 more hours worth of footage or something absolutely should, insane yeah. that, you know, from this movie. Wow. That, yeah. that just didn't 
must have been a nightmare to edit this movie. (laughs) Yes, well, wouldn't we all like to see that extra footage? I mean, uh, Kubrick himself maybe not two hundred hours worth. (laughs) No, he wouldn't. He's quite famous, right? And I think his daughter, Kubrick's daughter, I can't remember. Is her name Valerie? I'll get you know told off for getting that wrong. But she is actually the little girl. In in, oh, in the phone oh, booth right, in okay. the sequence, that's actually oh. Stanley Kubrick's daughter. Mm-hmm. But I think she now holds the reins of the Kubrick estate, and I think she keeps her father's legacy as alive as possible. And of course, if he if her father didn't want any extra movies to be made, then it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. But who knows? Well, it's interesting t- talking about Kubrick and his kind of eccentricities and his and his sort of strong views on, on various things i suppose one of the things i thought we might talk a little bit about in relation to these two films 2001 and the motion picture is this idea of kind of the role of the director and kubrick i guess is you know is, is almost synonymous with these kind of ideas of the director as this kind of artist as a sort of you know slightly i was gonna say tortured i don't know if he was tortured but but not necessarily a kind of he was a bit of an odd guy, right? <laughs> he was a kind well, of yeah, eccentric artist. I think it would be the yeah. kindest word. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas Robert Wise, you, you know, maybe had a reputation, although his work could kind of veer from genre to genre and so on. I mm. think there was a tendency to see him. One description I read was to see him as an artisan rather than an auteur. Yeah. And I don't know whether that's fair or not, because he made some fantastic films. But I can sort of see the argument there that he's kind of a guy who he'll go in and he'll make the film that needs making and he'll do a decent job on it. <laughs> but he's not a kind of... A, an artist in this kind of well, Robert know. Wise made three science, great science fiction movies and one musical, but he's only remembered for the musical. I know. Well, <laughs> he made two 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 good musicals, didn't he? At least what, what West Side the, Story and oh, the Sound of he, Music. Oh, I, you know, you yeah. got me on that one. Okay, so there you go. But I mean, uh, but I think there's an element. I mean, I don't know, Chris, what your thoughts are on that. But certainly, there are directors. You know, even today, it seems to me who someone like Ridley Scott, I would say, like bangs out a load of really impressive films yeah jumping genres doing whatever but it does feel a bit like he goes in and he 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 takes what it is and gives you the best version of that that he can come up with as opposed to someone who kind of all their films have a sort of it'll come it's all about them do you know what i mean yeah i think the i have various problems with the auteur theory from a sort of kind of practical level Mm. because i think well actually it takes hundreds of people to make a film so (laughs) the director is only but uh, in order to kind of apply it you would say that a director has to have a set of trademarks something Mm. that you can identify through a series of films regardless of genre you know because most Mm -hmm. directors don't work in one genre they actually work across multiple ones and from that point of view i think you know when you've seen a stanley kubrick film Mm. yeah there is something you know something about that and say the shining or barry linden or eyes wide shut that makes you i'd say actually slightly unnerved that's my disturbed yeah yeah and, and you can't quite put your finger you on can't it, no yeah. not at all and they're also different right mm. so mm. Uh, you know of course the shining is going to disturb you in a very different way to eyes wide shut in a very different way to to 2001 these these are but it's because he does that exquisite cinematography which is obviously a level of his perfectionism but of course there are cinematographers working with him and collaborating Mm. uh, on all of those can you say the same about others you know i think your ridley scott one's a really good example yeah nice capable director but can i take three ridley scott films and say 
I know that was directed in a by blind Ridley. test take. Test, well, because uh, you've also you know, got weird. Yeah, well. Remember his weird phase? Uh, that film Matchstick Men, and there's another really weird, almost rom com with Catherine Zeta Jones. That's him somewhere in the early two thousands. Not was, entrapment. You know, no, no. no um, I'd love it if that was a rom com. <laughs> <I thought laughs> that's it was. such a famously oh, a rom film. Uh, no, not the rom. <laughs> um, yeah. So. But you, you can't take Alien, Gladiator, and Matchstick Men and go, well, no. I, know, I know that And Ridley that's not Scott to say that they're not, I mean, like, they're they're many of them are not, like, Blade classic five... I mean, Blade Runner is probably my favourite film. Yeah. And it's not... And I'm not... I, I don't know what I'm saying, because I'm not... Obviously, Legend. there's an enormous amount of artistry in that, in that film. Was but Tom Cruise. Ah, yeah. I think it's... it's a, I suppose what, what it's really is about... Does the director adapt themselves to the material or do they adapt the material to themselves? To themselves, yeah. That's a really interesting way of looking at it. And I would say, because I actually love Ridley Scott, I really admire Mm. his work. So it's not actually, I'm not being derogatory to say... No, and I didn't mean you it know, in a negative way, it's really. It's not a and, negative thing. And I like thing. a lot of Robert Wise's films. I mean, I think, yeah. And they're very different. And they're very, you know, and he's very, I mean, you know, as you said, Tony, you, you know, from a fantastic kind of Hollywood musical through to, you know, we were talking earlier about The Andromeda Strain, which mm. is something that we talked about on Primitive Culture a few months ago, which mm. is a weird film. Very, yeah. But it has a lot of, you know, it's a very effective film in, in certain ways anyway. Certainly it's, it has its, you know, its effective moments. Thinking yeah. of this idea of technical detail mm. um, that we see here in 2001 and that we see in the motion picture, I think the Andromeda Strain's got it in spades mm. as yeah. well. I thought, I'm sure you guys could move through this lab quicker. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like I'm sure you could. But it does build get... up that sense of dread. And maybe yes, that's it does. part yeah, of what completely. you're saying about yeah, Kubrick yeah. having this kind of idea of like uh, this sort of discomfort and this, mm. you know, there's something slightly awkward about the whole experience. And I don't, I don't know whether in the motion picture we get that necessarily. I think the motion picture has a real pacing problem insofar as it does drag and it, it does just feel like things are taking too long for the, in terms of the story, especially as we said, married with this idea that keeps coming up in the plot, that everything's super urgent. Yeah. And, and the problem is there's something about the stakes in that film that I think don't quite work. And it's partly because they're trapped inside the Voyager, the Voyager, the Voyager cloud that we don't know. All, all we get is like these reminders saying, Oh, we're three minutes from earth. We're, you, you know, we're, we're an hour from earth, whatever it is, but we never see it because we're mm. sort of trapped inside until the very end. And it does have a weird echo of 2001, I suppose, in that, you know, he's trapped in that room. Like you were saying, Tony, we don't know, is he, is he in the past, the future, a thousand light years away? He's just trapped in this room. He can't see anything. And in the same way in the motion picture, they're trapped in the Vija cloud they, until the very, very end where the Enterprise kind of emerges and we're back at Earth. We don't really know where we were. And I think that's another slight problem I have with that film is that there's not very much boldly going because they don't really go anywhere. Yeah. They go at like half warp speed <laughs> for a bit. They, they finally get to the cloud. They get inside the cloud. It takes them back where they started. And the whole journey of the film, I'm, I'm not trying to bash the motion picture. I think it has a lot of interesting stuff going for it. But the whole journey of the film is very much internal and kind of philosophical and kind of, uh, you, you know, it's Star Trek on that level. It's not really Star Trek on a kind of cinematic level in a weird way. It's, it's this weird sort of mixture of the very internal and star trek does that i mean star trek can go from you you know a couple of people in a room arguing essentially for the best part of an episode out to like huge space battles or whatever but i wonder whether that film is sort of weirdly merging those two elements in some ways in that really the kind of heart of it is very 
it's, it's quite a small it's quite a small story in a way like if you both of these films to be honest if you just plotted out what happens it wouldn't necessarily take up that many pages of paper do you know what I mean I was yeah. thinking I don't know what the script for 2001 looks like but there's so little dialogue mm. it must be you know it's not well, going to uh, be a kind of hectic you know, going tone, back to it? that I mean that, that the story was a collaboration between Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke there, mm. wa- there wasn't any original material mm. it it it, it Kubrick wanted to make a science fiction space movie, and the only reason he wanted to do that was because we were in the height of the space race. Mm-hmm. You know, man, were, man was going to the moon. It was only a year after 2001 came out that Neil Armstrong set foot on the moon. Mm-hmm. But there was this whole, uh, you know, excitement going on about and fascination with space. So he was just projecting that forward and saying, well, okay, here we are, it's... Whatever, we're in 1966, 67. What, mm. will, what will life be like 30 years from now? And the only person who had any kind of tie into that was Arthur C. Clarke, who was proposing satellites in space to, to create telecommunication. And, and the, the space elevator, the idea that mm. you could have something in geostationary orbit and it would be tied to the ground, and you could go up into space on this lift thing, which I, which was used in episodes of Voyager. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Which you know, the same idea. Yeah, so, the whole so, episodes on that lift, isn't it? Some yeah. kind of thriller. Who's killing who? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so Arthur C. Clarke was the man to talk to. Sure. And so they collaborated, and the only knot that was tied that would put the two together was Arthur C. Clarke's story, The Sentinel, mm-hmm. which is where this pyramid-like shape is buried on the moon, right. waiting for someone to uncover it. And when it's uncovered, it sends out a signal heralding the dawn of a new age for mankind because they've discovered something, some extraterrestrial intelligent off the earth. Mm. And that was it. There was a little short story that they expanded into the middle of 2001, which is telling a bigger story. Mm. Mm. I mean, it's interesting that this idea of sort of what does the monolith represent? I suppose, I mean, you were saying by the end, he sort of sees it as a god or whatever it is. Obviously, uh, I guess we sort of assume, or certainly I assume, they're a bit like the, um, you know, in the Star Trek, so the Paradise Syndrome, for example, you've got the preservers, this kind of ancient race who've kind of, you, you know, this idea of these sort of ancient aliens, which crops up now and then, who have kind of had some impact on mm. human beings, whether that's in terms of jiggling around a bit with evolution or whatever. So it's some kind of supernaturally powerful entity of some mm. kind and i suppose the monolith itself is kind of an interesting visual for that because it's blank it's so blank it's so unknowable it's so you know we've got all the mysterious visuals with the kind of swirly things and the weird kind of lights and the color and all these kind of things that are kind of dazzling and in both films you have a character <clears throat> who witnesses all of that and is kind of bedazzled by it you, you know spock is kind of completely floored by it the character in 2001 it's, you get these same shots of like the the mask with the reflection of things yeah. and the face yeah, kind absolutely. of almost unable to cope with this sort of mm. like almost like having a kind of epileptic fit or something from the mm. kind of imagery but you also have this kind of blank black void it's a void almost isn't it the mm. monolith and it's so regular and square it's sort of it's so alien to our idea of what life is i suppose that's the thing it seems like a a machine and of course with Fiji, you have this whole concept of this this cloud which feels quite sort of organic and sort of mysterious and swirly but it's also got these very mechanical components and in fact turns out to be a machine 
kind of intelligence, essentially. Mm. And just that idea, I suppose, in both films of like coming up against something that is so beyond our understanding of anything that we have a frame of reference for, you know, and this comes up certainly in the motion picture there, all these lines saying, you know, it has whatever it is, 12 times the amount of power of, of something else or it's yeah, kind of yeah. like, you know on every scale and, and in order to communicate to, with it they have to speed up their transmission massively so just so they can get through to it so, so, it, so on it every scale it's kind yeah. of unreachable somehow alien but also kind of i guess what you get in 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 that film is also this sort of idea of transhumanism and mm. you know kind of going beyond our sort of organic well, there, regular there is know, a very kind of subtle and so on point between the two movies in the sense that in Star Trek The Motion Picture, V'ger is seeking its creator. Mm. In 2001, the monolith is, is virtually saying, I am Here your I am. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm seeking exactly. you. What yeah. are, where have you been yeah. all this time? You know, yeah. What took you so long? And, and in both films, this is in a kind of secular framework. I mean, yeah. they're, they're, they're very spiritual, but they're also kind of secular and they're, they're, you know, science fiction with an emphasis on the science and so on. And they're kind of trying to, I suppose capturing some of that sort of spiritual, almost religious, almost kind of, you know, sort of transcendental feeling, mm. but within a kind of rational framework, even if visually they kind of go off the rails a little bit in terms of the kind of representation of that, which is beyond what we can kind of comprehend somehow. It has to be put up on the screen somehow. What we, you know, it might be incomprehensible, it might be beyond our understanding, but mm. it has to be represented visually. So you get these kind of quite abstract visuals. I think it's it's also classic Star Trek in the way that it's 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 big ideas, right? It's cerebral. And that of course mm. is famously what Star Trek did so well it almost never made it to T V. Mm. You know <laughs> don't, <laughs> don't make us think, you know, for goodness sake, and don't put a woman on the bridge. But you know, it's it's that kind of, it's doing that just with a massive budget. Yeah. You know, and, and the budget's there, the effects are there, the models are there. But it's still doing what I think the the best episodes of Star Trek do, and throwing out some big ideas mm. and making us making the audience sit there and think again. You know, God, God help the poor audience. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's that weird tension, of course, because then you know when you come around to Star Trek Two, it's much more back to the kind of it, it's not back to the cage, it's back to the kind of TOS, and you know, yeah. slightly more kind of. I don't know, a bit more human, a bit more kind of, a bit less cerebral, I yeah, guess. Yeah, I think... And, and I suppose the, the elephant in the room, in a way, in terms of talking about the motion picture, is, of course, Star Wars, because between 2001 and the motion picture, the big game-changer in terms of science fiction was Star Wars, which mm. in some ways has more in common with the original series than it does with either of those things, you know, insofar as it's quite human, it's quite... Ju you know, there's a kind of comedy, there's a kind of rompy quality to it do you yeah, know what i mean, I know exactly um, what mean. and it's it's interesting in a way that when they brought star trek back for the motion picture it did seem like they were looking much more to 2001 much more to this kind of grand science fiction of ideas and kind of metaphysics and this kind of meaning like really still serious grown-up science fiction really mm. rather than taking the lead from this phenomenally successful well everything uh, in 2001 is plausible you see yeah it's it's plausible that um one day i mean we have a space station albeit not rotating uh, through space the way we see in 2001. But nevertheless, we do have a space station orbiting the Earth. Mm -hmm. We do have a delivery system up to that space station, which can now automatically dock. It, just, it doesn't need a pilot, but it'll go up there and 
dock with you know within seconds and perfectly well and release and come back to earth again mm-hmm. so we do have all that and it won't be too long possibly you know it won't be very long realistically that there will be a ship going out to mars to carrying humans to see what can be done out there so this is all from 68 when they conceived the idea uh, 2001 was it was just over 30 years away uh, that's proven to be a difficulty. The technology has moved on greatly, but the delivery systems haven't. So, but that's it will happen eventually. So, but everything was plausible. Everything looked plausible, and uh, there wasn't anything. It, nobody had any laser guns, phaser guns, lightsabers. You know, anything. Warp drive, transporters. Warp drives. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Star Trek has sort of baked into it certain ideas that do push. It's not hard science fiction. That's the thing, isn't it? Star Trek is is kind of, it is grounded in a more. It, it, it's more towards the end. It's more towards the fiction and less towards the science, if you know what I mean. Compared to something like two thousand and one, yeah. and the motion picture mm. maybe is a is an unusual step in so far as it does seem like you were saying earlier, Chris. So invested in the kind of mechanics of these quite what for them must be very mundane things of like you know taking the worker bee around the ship or kind yeah. of you know the kind of engineering of the ship and so on uh, and takes it away a little bit from the kind of heroic action adventure yeah. stuff that maybe you know and you can see that even in the characterization of kirk i mean from this character who was always very kind of confident and kind of i don't know quite easygoing he's become quite he, he's put in a slightly awkward situation we're not quite sure is he the right man for the job anymore has he been yeah. behind a desk too long and it's not even got the kind of pathos in a way that it has in the wrath of Khan, yeah. which kind of borrows that same storyline there's a real sense of like is he actually just you know kirk is a jerk is this is this kind of jerk kirk coming yeah, yeah. on board and throwing his weight <laughs> around and do, even by the end of the film do we entirely trust his motives because you know, Decker has been questioning them. McCoy's sort of been questioning them. There's this sort of weird sense around, you know, what what is his, has he almost got a kind of agenda because he wanted his shit back so much. And at the end of the film, he's just like, right, we're going off. Let's go, go off the yeah, other let's way. Go, yeah. kind of, okay, yeah, is this basically way. a joyride? That, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, what are, what are their orders? What are they meant to be doing? Well, you said okay, yourself, they saved Earth. They can do what they like. You said but, yourself you know. they didn't go far enough in the film. That's right? true. So yeah, it's, now it's know, about now time. Now I've got my command yeah. back. Can we actually go somewhere? Yeah. You know, so where do they go? Five this time, please. You know? <laughs> <laughs> they went that away, but yeah. which way which is that? It is interesting. It's quite a bold choice to go for the more cerebral science fiction when obviously the only reason the motion picture got made is because people saw the success of star wars mm. yeah you know, well that's a true story you know, paramount wanted their star, star wars, wars. Fox, yeah, absolutely. 20th century fox had star mm. wars they made a killing on it yeah and paramount just wanted a, a jump on the bandwagon type deal yeah unfortunately for us they had star trek yeah up their sleeve which is a uh, uh, absolutely magnificent and of course they you know, the famous story is they were in the process of producing Star Trek Phase Two, and yes, yeah. uh, they they halted that entire production to throw the budget into the into movie. A movie. And I yeah, suppose absolutely. that's in some ways that's the answer to why we didn't get a more Star Warsy. I mean, if you think of say Star Trek two thousand and nine, that to me is Star Trek as Star Wars. 
Do you know what I mean? I mean, I yeah. always thought that film was basically J.J. Abrams like calling cards saying, can I direct Star Wars? And it worked yeah, out yeah. for him and, you, you know, <laughs> okay, whatever. But I mean, they, they, they could have made a Star Wars-y Star Trek film in 1979, but they didn't. And maybe that's the answer as to why they ended up making this very cerebral, very kind of cool film was the work that had been going into phase two and some of the characters <laughs> that they've been developing there. Yeah, uh, and Gene Roddenberry kind of on his most sort of, and we saw it again with Next Gen, with the beginning of Next Gen, yeah. it's very kind of utopian, but a little bit sterile. You, you know, the early years of Next Gen, before they kind of developed that, real kind of camaraderie between the crew, there is that element of, particularly from Picard, and, and kind of filtering down that kind of coolness, that kind of aloofness that definitely seemed to be how Roddenberry seemed to want to reimagine Star Trek at yeah. that time. And it took other people coming in to kind of bring the the life back into it in yeah, some ways. Yeah, that's absolutely it. I mean, famously, they weren't allowed to write conflict between their characters, yeah. right? I mean, that's They weren't crazy. allowed to grieve people who died. They weren't allowed yeah, to... Yeah, I mean, you know. this is just ludicrous. I mean, this mm -hmm. is why we watch... This is why we watch anything for yeah, conflict, yeah, yeah. you know. Um, and the original series is so famously full of it. Mm. You know, there's not one episode where Kirk, Spock and McCoy aren't in some sort of disagreement you know, and that's so wildly entertaining <laughs> that no matter how ludicrous the plot, <laughs> you're 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 there. You're there with the characters, and so yeah, I'm, I'm very yeah. glad Next Gen got <laughs> got put on got the right foot. Yeah, Slightly, you know, yeah. Um, and in the motion, the motion picture is a funny one there too, isn't it? Because I'm a massive fan of The Wrath of Khan. It's probably the Star Trek movie that I go back to uh, mm. the most. And Undiscovered Country is my next one, actually. Mm -hmm. So the, the two Nicholas Mayer ones are my, are my go-to because the characters are all there. Yeah. And there is this sense in the motion picture that, that it, it, they're not quite there. Like, you know, we do get some nice... Spock moments and some nice McCoy moments. Um. Well, maybe that was part of the point in mm. a way. They'd all moved on, with the exception of Sulu and Chekhov and Uhura. Uh, they'd all, everyone had moved on. Kirk was now an admiral, Spock was on Vulcan. Yeah. Something was pulling them back to the Enterprise. Neither, neither of them, I, they either knew why or they, they certainly with. Kirk, he had his own agenda mm. and he was just looking for an avenue, an excuse. They all um, had their own agendas is the thing. I mean, Kirk had his agenda for getting the Enterprise back. Spock didn't really want to be back in Starfleet particularly. I mean, I know by the end he sort of says, I don't have any business on Vulcan anymore. But, you know, clearly at the beginning of the film, he's 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 doing something else with his life. McCoy is doing something else with his life. You know, it's kind of like getting the gang back together, but they're almost not entirely sure they want to be back together well, particularly I, McCoy is really pissed off about it yeah. <laughs> you know he's like what the yeah. hell have you brought me here for? And, then, and then he says you know basically I'm, I'm terrified yes. you can those are my ner my last nerves short, you know being shredded that. basically yeah. so there's this kind of it's it, it's not like they go straight back to the old relationship and the kind of you know we think of like Star Trek 5 and the campfire and everything that yeah, kind yeah. of the warmth of that even well, with that, the bickering, well, that, but that's what I'm saying. Were they not trying to make that point? The that point that everybody there. was. They didn't really know each other as well as they used to. They'd or, separate. Or it's yeah. like when yeah. you're best friends with all your mates at college or school or whatever, mm. and you meet up in a bar 20 years later and you try and recapture that, and you suddenly realize, oh no, you can't really do it. It was great then, mm. but you can't recreate it. Mm. And so maybe there was an element of that mm. that took them a while to gel. And Kirk just wanted to get the job done. Spock is 
there's something mysterious going on. I, I have to figure out what this is. It's mm. going to affect, uh, as you say, McCoy doesn't want to be here, but he's there anyway. And, um, and uh, you know, and, and of course, Scotty was there because he's yeah. always tinkering with stuff, yeah. you know. And, um, and they're just all thrown together again, but thrown together almost as strangers, mm. you know, trying to rediscover each, each other's weaknesses and strengths. Mm. Maybe that's what the movie was meant to be saying who yeah. it wasn't made clear because yeah. we, we want to see TOS on the big screen everyone happy and chummy and McCoy calling Spock a green blooded yeah, yeah. Bitch, or whatever but at the same time it's that complicated thing of, of saying well we can't just make a film even though many of the aspects of the film do cater to existing fans mm. you can't just make a film and hope it'll do well at the box office because a load of trekkies will go see it mm. that's not enough you've got to as you're saying quite correctly probably mm. press the reset button which is bringing them all back mm. you know who are they where have they been because you might have had a load loads of people would have been in the cinema to see that who'd never watched the original series. And therefore you've got to think, so what is this film to someone who, who isn't already invested in these characters? Mm. And maybe in that instance, it is a kind of grand metaphysical sort of philosophical yeah. exploration of the future of, you know, transhuman beings. It, you know, it is a kind of a meditative film in the sense that 2001 is this kind of, you know, art, an art film in a sense. It's kind of almost reaching for that. Obviously, by the time you get to something like Star Trek Four, it's like, okay, it's a rom-com. You know, that's yeah, sure. that again was a way, you know, and famously the most popular of the Star Trek films because it, yes, I know, it did yeah, completely hugely. bridge that gap. Um, you know, once you get to Star Trek 6, it's a kind of Cold War thriller. It's kind yeah, of, yeah. you know, I mean, that yeah. is one of the great elements of Star Trek, I think, is its flexibility. It's kind of generic flexibility. Yeah. And the original series films, they did, you know, do a pretty good job of, of exploring the different things that Star Trek could be. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Well, before we go, um, do you guys have any final thoughts on 2001 or the motion picture or anything that we kind of haven't covered that you wanted to bring out about the connections between these two films? Only that it was wonderful to see the uh, Enterprise leaving space dock and in 2001, the Discovery gliding past our eyes and knowing that Doug Trumbull worked on both movies and in various ways made both movies a cinematic success. And I love seeing both those pieces of work every time. Uh, and I think it's nice to see Gary Lockwood. Um, oh, yeah, absolutely. Famous, famously from Star Trek's second pilot. From the second pilot, the, the, the less cerebral one. He's, no, he's oh, a, you know, it. ramping up his cerebral uh, yeah, qualifications possibly, here. Possibly, yeah. Um, but uh, I actually, I still love I still love Where No Man's Gone Before and think yeah. it's still really good sci-fi, actually. Mm -hmm. So I don't, uh, yeah. But yes, less cerebral. But uh, nice to see Gary Lockwood again. Connection. And you were saying, Tony, that there's also uh, in the motion picture almost kind of a little Easter egg for fans of 2001 that the Klingon ship is named after one of the characters in this film. Is that right? Well, you'd wonder, really. I, Martin Amar is named as the newsreader in right. 2001. He comes on and he's the man who's talking to the crew and to Hal. And the name Amar appears in Star Trek as well at the, at the beginning. It's one of the Klingon ships, I believe, that 
gets destroyed by the Vija cloud. Interesting. It's just that name, Amar. It's a, 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 a subtle, a, a very <laughs> subtle little Easter egg for anyone who's, who's really paying attention to both these films. But I mean, I think you don't need to be clued into that level of detail to see the similarities between mm. these films and to see where the motion picture is getting some of its kind of distinctiveness from. It's certainly not getting those qualities from the original series. It's, you know, if anything, it probably is picking up from 2001. And obviously, you know, 2001, although I think it had some quite mixed reviews to begin with, it presumably, you know, fairly quickly started building this kind of following and this kind of its status it, it, it being recognised as a kind mm. of important work of art, really, mm. as, 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 as the idea that science fiction could be art, I suppose, which maybe before then was questionable yeah you had your your 50s and 60s science fiction was sort of relegated to b movies mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. um you know there was some interesting stuff around stuff like quatermass and you know that, that was maybe again a bit more cerebral if that's our theme but i think 2001 uh was the thing that put it on the map as something that can be kind of properly respected as a cinematic work the audiences and critics alike are going to go all right, this is something to be contended with. And as I think I've said once already on this, I think that took a while to set in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 68, it was there. But really, our big sci-fi blockbusters, as we've come to know and love them, uh, hit around the late 70s. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I just think it took... From Star Wars onwards. From Star Wars onwards, because as soon as Star Wars made money again, I think it's also ruined several (laughs) filmmakers' aspirations, to be honest. But... As soon as Star Wars made money, everyone realised that they should be putting money into science fiction and that changed. Oh, I know. Uh, When Star Wars came out, I saw it probably as often as I saw 2001. Mm. But I remember going to see Battlestar Galactica, the first movie, and thinking, I don't really like this. Mm. It's jumping on the bandwagon. And for the sake of having a... Uh, a spaceship in space and and a fight somewhere with some things flying around. They were successfully sued by 20th Century Fox really? for something oh. like 12 points of copyright infringement. Yeah. Oh, well, good. maybe it's good we never saw the uh, you know the the, the Star Wars Star Trek back in Version. the late 1970s. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, maybe actually it worked out for the best. Yeah. Well, it's been fun talking about these two films today, and fun for me to be able to see 2001 for the first time. Before we go, why don't you guys tell our listeners where they can find you online, or if they you know if they want to carry on the conversation one way or another? Tony, you go first. Well, um, on Twitter, you can get me at, at shamrock165. You'll find me on the Babel Conference on Facebook. And please listen to Continuing Mission, which is the uh, podcast that I uh, speak on. You can hear my voice. And also, don't forget Melodic Tracks with Brandon Shea where we talk about the music of track and beyond. Cool. Uh, I'm at the University of Greenwich, a lecturer in film and television production. And you can find me on Twitter with the handle at none, that's N-U-N-N, the less, nonetheless. Well, thank you, both of you, for joining me once again. It's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Talking about Star Trek The Motion Picture and 2001 A Space Odyssey is not the only thing we've been doing on Trek FM this week. So have a listen to what else you might have missed out on on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, Primitive Culture, a look at history and culture through Star Trek. 
you know, I remember the freedom of having my own car. And believe it or not, I actually had a Plymouth Fury. It wasn't a 58, right? No it way. Was a, it was a 73. <laughs> but yeah, my first car was a Plymouth Fury. And there was, this is, the movie was part of the reason why. When I saw that for sale, it was a cheap car. I paid like 500, 300 bucks, something like that for it. It was in really Brandon, good shape. you really, you really didn't take the message of this movie. <laughs> you went out and bought one of those cars. <laughs> it was yellow. It wasn't red, you know, so. Who knows? Someone might have sprayed it. Standard Orbit. We recorded most of the Shatner episodes. Every now and then we missed. Like, okay, we'll get it next round with Nimoy. We kind of thought it'd be the same thing. It's like, oh, there's going to be no difference. It's just Spock reading it instead of Kirk. No, completely different, right? So it's like, oh, crap. We should have bought 160 tapes instead of 80 for this. Literary Treks. I did like the scenes with his family and Riker, you know, spending the night at the home, getting up in the morning, having breakfast with the family. Oh, look, they made him coffee. There was just... There was just something really nice and settling about Riker just being in that situation and being treated with such respect and with arms around him, you know, just welcoming him and making him feel at home. And I guess you don't really feel that all that often in many Star Trek stories when you beam down to a planet and you're just welcomed into somebody's home and you're just seeing what a normal, happy family is like. Warp 5. That's kind of how Trip acted, though, right? He he needed to see this. He needed to actually step in uh, to the situation, and and I appreciate that. You know, like a lot of people give him some flack for being kind of pig-headed, or I think they even almost assume that he has a problem with the three genders. And he's like, no, I don't have a problem with the three genders. I have a problem that this third sex. I, I guess they get it wrong. Enterprise. The writers should have said sex the entire time. They should have said sex. But I'm guessing, you know, they're on TV, and if they say sex a whole bunch, they might get uh, the wrong the wrong idea. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place is to join the larger conversation on the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type in Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Primitive Culture. That'll come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. Primitive Culture is brought to you by Duncan Barrett and Clara Cook. You can find Duncan Barrett on Twitter at Barrett's Books. You can find Clara on Twitter at MC. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm.
We'd like to take this opportunity to thank our associate producers here at Primitive Culture, Tony Black and Amy Nelson. Tony was one of the founders of this show, and we still keep him in the loop about what we're doing. You can find him on Twitter at at AJBlackWriter and online hosting about a dozen other podcasts on everything from the X-Files to classic cinema. Amy is the host of two shows on the Trek FM network, Earl Grey and The Edge, and you can find her online on Twitter at at Miss Amy Nelson. You're blended all right.